Hey, it's Tom Liu. Rhea Health is the modern alternative at-home approach that helps people drink less alcohol. The program gives people a choice in their recovery because Rhea helps its members to reduce and moderate alcohol consumption, as well as go completely abstinent if that's your goal. In an analysis of Rhea's members, it showed that on average, people reduced their drinking by 50% within the first 30 days of the program. How? Because Rhea's program is evidence-based. They combine FDA-approved medications that are scientifically proven to reduce cravings for alcohol in addition to one-on-one support to change your behaviors and relationship to alcohol. RIA also offers online peer meeting groups and app-based drink tracking tools to measure progress toward your goals. And right now, listeners can get $25 off their first month when you visit RIA Health, that's R-I-A Health, dot com slash collective check it out this is recovery collective with tom Liu. tom and his collective of guest contributors callers authors speakers and artists talk shift to educate and empower about recovery in its many forms to overcome and rise above the avdc's The addictions, vices, devices, distractions, or compulsions that may ail you or someone you know. Visit us online at recoverycollective.net and on Instagram at recovery underscore collective. This is Jen Elizabeth, author of Shape of a Woman. You are listening to Recovery Collective with Tom Liu. Recovery has brought me back home, and I have had to walk through a forest of shit to get back home. Opiates took my life like a thief in the night. Quick. You protect the mess. As long as the mess looks pretty on the outside, nobody confronts the mess. This is my life. This is how I grew up. This is the way that I've been taught. I am a groomed secret keeper. I have been groomed since my baby years to pretend that things are perfect and never confront the shit that's going on on the inside. Jen Elizabeth is an author and recovery advocate, but more fittingly perhaps, in my opinion, after talking with her at length, Jen is a recovery warrior. She's ended her silence about surviving a multitude of childhood traumas, sexual abuse, drug addiction, jail, and eating disorders, and outlines it all in her first book, Shape of a Woman. Today, Jen is a wife and mother of two incredible children. She's a writer and recognized speaker on all things recovery. She has healed her life and inspires anyone who crosses her path to do the same. Jen's terrific, and this episode is one of my favorites. Here now is my in-depth conversation with Jen Elizabeth on Recovery Collective. So let's jump in, Jen. Uh, You and I connected on the great thing known as the internet, and specifically Instagram, mostly. Right. The recovery culture, the recovery community, maybe, is big and Mm -hmm. thriving on Instagram, and I think it's wonderful. So I came across your stuff. And I started following your posts and what you were saying and what you were doing. I just liked how you talked. I liked the things you said. You're edgy. You're, uh, you're, yeah. uh, you lay it out there. You know, you say it like I'm a little bit is. much. What's that? <laughs> I'm a little bit much, huh? No, I don't, I wouldn't say that. I'd say you're just right. <laughs> I'd say you, you kind of lay it out there. You're not, you don't sugarcoat stuff and neither do I. I don't think people that are struggling with any kind of addiction or, or, or anything like that, they're not used to things being sugarcoated because most shit's not right at that right. point. 
So we kind of lay it out there. So let's start at the beginning, Jen. Recovery Collective here. Kind of just want to spotlight people who have been through addiction from whatever, any number of things. Take us back to, you know, back to the days when uh, things were out of control. Take us back to the beginning and bring us through. I know it's a lot to cover, but give us you know, the, the overview and uh, take us on a little bit of a journey. When you were younger, I know you had quite a story, which is all outlined in your book, Shape of a Woman, which I really recommend. It's a very compelling book. It tells your story from childhood on and just your journey, which is amazing. Let's on the inside of Jen Elizabeth here and who you are and why you sure. do all this recovery stuff. Well, you know, I'm recovering from a lot of stuff. I mean, that's the truth of it, you know. Um my addiction is a manifestation of a lot of wounds. And, you know, I'm, I, I believe for myself, and I, and I believe this for a lot of people, that um, I was an addict before I ever found drugs and alcohol. I have addictive behaviors. I'm an escaper. Um, I'm a numb out I'm in lots of ways. I can disassociate from my body. Um, there's a lot of behaviors that I was exhibiting at five years old and it progressed till finding alcohol and finding drugs. And I, and I also believe that, uh, another thing that I think shocks people is that I think my addiction or alcohol and drugs saved my life at one point. How do you mean? And I know it's a strange thing to say, right? Um, I became so tortured inside, you know, I have a lot of childhood pain and, um, eating disorders, and, and I became so uncomfortable in my skin that I think it's possible, you know, I, I was almost to the point of, you know, I don't know if I may have tried to kill myself um, when I was around 11, 12, um, and the other escaping tools I had, you know, developed slowly stopped working. You know, the longer you don't deal with your shit, the bigger it grows, and eventually one coping skill or, you know, whatever, it stops working, slowly stops working. And it's like, I happen to just trip on alcohol, just by accident, you know, and boom, silence, it silenced the beast, and it silenced the suicidal thoughts. So there's a moment in time where I feel that, you know, drugs and alcohol were a poor coping skill, clearly. Um, but they were like the solution until they became the problem. They kind of saved my life before they took my life. Makes sense. In a way. I think anyone, Jen, who's been through addiction with alcohol, drugs, and whatever else, because there could be many things, eating disorders, as Clearly. you mentioned, mm -hmm. any kind of body image issues, you know, understands that. It works for a time, right? I mean, mm -hmm. it worked It worked for a while for you, that stuff, did it not? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. It silenced. You know, I felt peace for the first time ever. I, I just have never known peace. You know, even as a kid, you know, I just was, you know, I, um, being sexually molested, it, it gave me a lot of questions. I was always wondering, you know, I would lay at night at bed in bed at night at, at five, six, seven, eight, and wonder what was wrong with me. What am I doing? You know, is this, you know, um, I must be disgusting. I must be dirty. Um, and then it just grew, you know, I had my mom, you know, battles severe mental illness and I just always wanted her to love me and she just couldn't. And, and, you know, so there's another, you know, instance where what's wrong with me and no one ever talked about anything, you know, silence is a bitch. Mm -hmm. 
And, and for children, especially, um, I feel when you don't explain stuff to kids or sit and talk to them and give them the respect, you know, of conversing about stuff, they sit and try to figure it out themselves. And this is grown up shit that I had no, you know, grasp on whatsoever. So I would sit in bed at night or in my room alone and try to come up with these answers to questions that don't make sense. There's no answer for shit like that. It's just unacceptable, but I would. And so I, I was so tortured, man. I just, I, I feel, you know, I have children and I, and I see them playing and stuff. And I just, gosh, I never, I, ne- I, I really can tell you, I, I never had that. I just never had that innocent feeling or that um, carefree. I was just worried all the time, worried about my mom, worried about myself, you know, worried about what was going to happen when I went to church next, because that's where I was molested, worried if I was doing things right. It's just a lot of worrying. You outline a lot of this in your book, Shape of a Woman. It's out there right now on Amazon and other places I would imagine you can tell us about that mm-hmm. shortly, but um, without giving it all away, because I want to encourage people listening to pick up your book. And I know you spend a lot of time, you, you say it a lot in your book, you know, you're focusing on women and stuff, but yeah, I got a tremendous amount out of reading your book. And obviously I'm not a woman, but you <laughs> know, it doesn't really matter. The journey, the the path, the process, I guess I'll say it's mm-hmm. applicable to anyone, women or men. And so I encourage anyone listening to check out your book, Shape of a Woman by Jen Elizabeth, because it's really so good um, as a recovery advocate. And, and again, if you're a person listening who appreciates people who tell it like it is and tells it straight, this is for you. And that's the reason why, again, I wanted to talk with you. But you reference a couple of things here, but kind of go back just a little bit. You were raised in the church, your family. I know you talk about this in the book. Some stuff happened to you then. Your mom uh, battles mental illness and some things like that. Just get us to the point where you know you got to that part when you were in your teenage years and you discovered alcohol. But prior to that, what are some of the things that, uh, that happened to you that obviously traumatized a young girl? Well, you know, it starts really before I was even born. You know, my mom, um, unfortunately, is, is suffers a lot of mental health issues, severe ones, um, bipolar, but she has Munchausen and Munchausen by proxy, which is a very misunderstood and, and really a lot of even professionals and specialists don't know exactly about, about it a lot. However, to put it in a nutshell, it's it's those people that you see on the surveillance cameras on the news who put the pillow over the baby's face right until the you know nurses come running in and then move the pillow and they're the rescuer. It's it's very much they seek that attention that oh you've been through so much to the point that they mutilate themselves, create illnesses in themselves, and then by proxy is they do it to a child. So, you know, and she's also has severe anorexia. So, you know, it's not her fault. That is something I want to make sure and be very clear about because I have friends that suffer from mental health issues. I myself have battled eating disorders and stuff. You know, it's, it's not her fault. You know, um, it is what it is. However, when you grow up in a home like that um, and she was not treated properly for it. She was not seeking any type of therapy or, or anything. So it was just running rampant behind the front, behind our closed doors. And it's something you don't talk about when you shut the door, you act as if your family's normal, but behind the closed doors, I mean, my mom was hallucinating and, um, 
that the mania was out of control and always sick, always in the hospital. So, you know, my home life was chaotic and my parents decided to join this church when I was two and a half with these other like families. Uh, we lived in Santa Barbara. That's where I was born. And, um, everybody, this whole, like, I think it was like 35 young families decided to move all the way across the country to Alabama, Mobile, Alabama. And, um, we left everybody that we knew at home, you know, our family, we weren't allowed to talk to friends, family. And, and I don't know if you're familiar with like the Guyana tragedy, Jim Jones. Oh yeah. Very similar. Like, dude, I think we're steps from drinking the Kool-Aid, you know? I mean, it got, I don't think things like that start off, you know, it's like domestic violence. You don't, you don't meet a guy and he punches you in the face, you know, it's slow, Mm -hmm. big time. So it progressed and progressed. And, um, there was a lot of abuse going on for, for everybody, you know, and for me, um, you know, one of the, one of the elders, um, one day brought me into his little office area and he had me sit on his lap to memorize Bible verses and it started slow. And, you know, we were made to believe this man was so much closer to God than we would ever be. So I felt really honored to be with this guy. You know, I felt like it was special and I was special. And when you come from a home where you are non-existent because there's so much else going on, you know, that that's what I try to talk to people about predators. You know, very rarely does a predator, you know, abuse a child that comes from a, a present home where, where the parents are present because it's risky, you know, they choose homes that where the parents are using, drinking, not there, latchkey kids, you know, um, maybe super poor or whatever it is, you know, they know the ones I was a prime target because, you know, this man knew my, my parents super well. And they, in that church, they believed that, and it's, it was a cult and it was disbanded as a cult. I should not call it a church, uh, a cult. They believe that mental illness was um, not real. It was just a fight of the from the devil for your soul. And if you were exhibiting um, behaviors, um, it was a proof that you were losing that battle and giving in to temptation and the desire of the devil. So my mom and dad tried to hide it. But, you know, this man knew I came from a pretty unstable house, you know. Not only that, he knew he had control over everybody in that church. So... He never told me not to tell anybody, not once. You just kind of knew it was I part knew. of the indoctrination. It was just, you said a second ago, and let me go back, and I think this is a big thing, where you were at that time, and based on the, the setup here that you've laid out, you know, you felt honored and, and special yeah. to be mm-hmm. with this person, right? I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a, it's a hard thing to hear, but I mean, and for someone on the outside looking in who hasn't been through something like that, it could seem really, you know, foreign or way out there, but anyone else who's been through it, and I know there's people listening that have been through something similar or or different or whatever, it's very real. It is very real, especially, you know, at that, I was five. I mean, my son is five and a half, and I just, he has no clue what the hell's going on in the world, you know? So it's it's young enough to really get somebody, and it, and and I did feel honored. This man was seen as, you know, my ticket to heaven, my family's ticket to heaven. Um, my dad was, we were poor, and um, my dad couldn't afford the tithing, which was 10% of your income to the church every week. 
to the cult. Mm-hmm. I hate to say church because I, I have I really have a, a great strong faith and and relationship with with my higher power with God or whatever. And I don't want to give a bad you know outlook on church. This was a cult. <laughs> it was disbanded legally as a cult. Um, my parents did not know they were joining a cult. However, that's what it grew to be. But. Well, a few people um, do when they when they go into those situations. It's not like somebody right. comes by and says, "Hey, we have this great cult. Would you like to join?" It doesn't work like that. <laughs> We're going to abuse you and take your money, right? And separate you from everybody. You know, isolation's a bitch, and 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 that's the thing. You know, we were isolated, so um, that's part of the you know, tactic, right? Oh, big time! It's part of the tactic. Yep. And so, um, I you know I did feel honored, and I and I did feel. Um, it, it did not feel strange to me at first. It felt like I was a good girl and I was getting attention, attention that I had not received before. Nobody told me I was a good girl at home. You know, nobody played with my hair. And those are the things that he did. But as it progressed, you know, it did get uncomfortable. It did feel strange. And as I got a little older, I'm reading in the Bible that, you know, about perversion and stuff like that. But I'm being kind of perverted, right? So I started to question myself and question what was going on. And and as the acts got more graphic, that's the best way to say it, um, I would lay in bed at night, this is very common for me, and try to figure out what was going on. And so what I came up with in my little six, seven-year-old brain is that if I put my mouth on somebody and he puts his mouth on me, that I must eat people. And if somebody, because as, as a child, you, you have very, you know, it's simple thinking. Yeah. Right, literal. So if you're going to put your mouth on somebody because you want to taste it or eat whatever. So I thought I was very, very disturbed. So that, and long? that was a secret I should keep. Yeah. So you started <laughs> you re, you, at first. You didn't think it was wrong. You didn't Mm-mm. think it was a problem. But as time went on, you got older. Mm-hmm. Yeah. About how long are we talking in total? Was this going on with this person? Doing we this? fled. We finally escaped when I was nine and a half. So you said five nine. So four so about plus four, years. It was probably yeah. I think I was five or four and a half when it started, but. I remember five. I don't remember every time, you know. I mean, my it it blocks you block it a lot out, and and that's okay with me. I had somebody ask me, you know, well, you should go get, you know, psychotherapy and try to remember. I don't need to remember every time. I remember enough. Sure. Trust me, I I know. I remember enough, and even further, it doesn't. That that's not really. This is going to sound strange, but it's not really the secrets that I was keeping that that destroyed me. It's that I kept the secrets. It's that I just left my body to this man for the sake of approval and affection and never said anything to anybody because I didn't feel worthy. I didn't feel like I would be protected or loved. And that kind of feeling, the keeping secrets because your truth doesn't matter that shit stays with you. And that, that theme has carried on through my, through my entire life, really. So now, did your parents, your dad, your mom, during these years when this was happening, were they aware of it? Did they suspect it? Or did they know or not know? That's a, that's a tough one. You know, I, 
I never, I did not tell my parents that I was 26. And, and when I made that phone call, um, the first thing my dad said is, I thought something like that was going on. And that hit me hard, you know, because. How did that make you feel? I mean, why did it hit you so hard? I can only imagine, but explain <laughs> it for us. You know, um, at the time, you know, I wasn't a parent, so I, I didn't have, I didn't know what that was like to feel like how you're supposed to feel for a child. You know, now being a parent, it really is disturbing because I cannot even fucking imagine anyone right. touching or even talking wrong to my children. Right. I would just, no. you know, however, you know, I wasn't a parent then, but I met, I just instantly felt unworthy. It just carries on. I wasn't worth him making a fuss over or you know he was avoiding conflict possibly or he was also under the finger of, of their control and he didn't want to be excommunicated from that situation you know who knows it's a multitude of things but yeah. whatever it was he suspected something and never said anything i mean just even listening to that and you, again <laughs> you it's, it's hard to it's hard to even fathom, you know, your, your dad at 26 tells you, I, I thought maybe something like that yeah. was happening, but then nothing was yeah. said. But I don't want to live on that, Jen, but I, I, no, think it's, no. I, I think it's important that, you know, you we set the stage with that because obviously anyone who knows psychology 101 <laughs> understands yeah. that something like that happening to a young girl uh, mixed with everything else that you laid out with your parents and the issues that mm -hmm. you, you know, with your mom and mental illness and other things is going to set a stage and the likelihood for tough shit happening going forward is right. is high. So right. move us forward. forward. I, and I know there's a lot more to that. And again, you outline a lot of this in your book, Shape of a Woman. Yeah. We're talking right. with Jen Elizabeth. Shape of a Woman is out there, Amazon and everywhere books are. But move us forward into, you get into your, your teen years, you get into mm -hmm. becoming you know a young adult, an adult, and uh, tell us what the road was like for you then carrying all this stuff forward with you? So, um, you know, I, when I was 12 years old, I, uh, found alcohol and I, um, pretty much alcohol has been with me since then. Um, I think I was personally, I believe I was an alcoholic the minute I had my first drink. Mm. It was, uh, um, instant, an instant desire to continue drinking at any point possible. You know, I never drank to party. I drank to get relief from myself. You know, it was never about the weekends or the clubs. It was about relieving myself of memories, of pain, of, you know, self-loathing. And, and um, I really, I really do. I feel like the first sip was it for me, man. It just, I, I was on a roll. And so, you know, I drank and, um, in high school, um, I, I didn't want to just drink on the weekends. I wanted to drink all the time and, and smoke weed and, and do acid. And so I, I started hanging out with the kids that do that, which are the kids that are, are usually not going in a great direction. And there I went, you know, um, gosh, sucking Freon from air conditioners. <laughs> I mean, just anything I could find, really, anything I could find, looking for I, I would that, do. Looking for the relief, as, as you said. Relief. Say. It was relief for me. Jen, do you think that's a, I mean, again, we can only speak for ourselves with absolute certainty, but I would suggest that for anyone who becomes or 
eventually finds themselves in real hardcore addictive behavior with any kind of substance or behaviors, whatever it is, that relief becomes the primary thing, whether it's because they were, maybe in your case, it wasn't about the fun and the partying and the clubs, like you said, it was relief for you instantaneously. But for some people, maybe it starts off fun and it's all good, but then it turns into, it becomes a tool for relief. It's a common thing, I think. I know it was for me anyway. Uh, yeah, I agree. Oh, I agree. I think as alcoholism and addiction, which it's all the same to me, you know, um, it does become a relief because it co- becomes a relief from the wreckage you're creating as well. You know, all that stuff just creates more and more wreckage behind you. So like whatever you're running from from the start, now you're running from even more stuff because now you're lying, you're stealing, you're losing jobs, you're dropping out of school you know, everyone's looks at you bad, whatever it is that you're doing. So it's like, you have to escape yourself and escape the mess that you're making. You make a really good point there. And I want to call out something that I thought was just this tremendous analogy that you write about in your book, Shape of a Woman. And that's this, I wrote down the Forrest Gump analogy. And you talk (laughs) about, you talk about this in the book, anyone who knows that movie, which I suspect most people do. And I want you to share about that a little bit here. You just talked about, you know, you're running away in the movie. Forrest is is running those scenes where he's running for all those miles across the country, whatever, and he, people are following him and everything. What was your point of including that in the book? Because I thought it was great because everyone can relate because most of us have seen that film. Talk about the Forrest Gump analogy and the running away from stuff. Yeah, I really, man, that that part, the minute I saw that movie, that's what I instantly thought of. It's like the demons that you're running from, the wreckage. You know, here he's running across and he's totally oblivious. He just wants to keep running. And that was me, dude. I was oblivious to the shit that I was, I was creating. I just wanted to keep running. I did not want to sit still with myself. I didn't want to sit still with my pain. So I kept running. And then at some point, I finally had enough. And I just stopped, like Forrest Gump, and he turns around, he says, I think I'll go home now. And this mass of people has just, you know, developed behind him all along the way, and he had no idea. And then he has to walk through all that, all those people to get back home. And that, that was me, you know. Recovery has brought me back home. And I have had to walk through a forest of shit to get back home. Because every year that I was in my addiction, it just grew and grew and grew and grew. And, you know, the longer that you're in that, the more wreckage you're creating. And you have to go back through it. There's just no other way around it. You cannot skip around it. You know, like they say, the only way out is through. That is so true. And you have to go through every single one. You know, it's a great point, and I want to just pause here for a second with that, because what you just said there, it's really a good majority of what I've learned in recovery, and it sounds like you have too. And I think people that are still stuck in ruts, people that, I'm talking about those that are maybe listening to this right now who are thinking, man, I'm doing that. I'm not talking about the people that are still in full-blown denial that really haven't come to grips with it, like I was for many years, but people (laughs) that are maybe thinking, man, I'm... I'm running away from this stuff. We're never going to outrun it. It's never going to just disappear. It's just going to get bigger behind you, like you said, like the Forrest Gump analogy. And eventually, if somebody chooses to face that stuff, turn and face it, 
turn and face the strange, right? As <laughs> the song where it goes, <laughs> yeah. you know, you got to go through it. You got to go back through it to get over it, to get past it. And I love what you said a second ago, Jen, about, you know, recovery for you was about turning around and, and going home, going home to yourself, mm-hmm. you know, and yeah. that's, that's a great way to look at it. It's powerful stuff here. Let's go back a little bit. So I know we're, we're skipping over a lot, but again, the book, Shape of a Woman, check it out. But obviously you were drinking, partying in your mm-hmm. teen years, you're doing your stuff. Yeah. You, you ended up getting into a lot of trouble. Your addiction brought you down to some tough spots and um, you, know, you went to jail, mm-hmm. I don't more than once. Uh, tell, oh, us, yeah. <laughs> tell us about that, what led to that, and then um, bring us to, I guess, the lowest points. Uh, yes, I was drinking, using, and I um, eventually, you know, my alcoholism became extreme. I mean, drinking morning to night, you know, the story, how it goes. And I had to have a wisdom tooth pulled. And the dentist prescribed me Vicodin. And I, again, the first pill, man, I was gone. Opiates took my life like a thief in the night. I mean, quick. Faster than alcohol ever did? Oh, yeah. Alcohol, you know, people, alcohol is a terrible, alcohol is a drug, period. That's just, that's how I feel. I'm going to clarify that. Um, but alcohol is, you will, you can, will die from alcohol. It's just a slower progression. However, for me, at least the opiates, it was fast. I mean, I had one prescription and it, maybe it was, you know, they were a little more free with those prescriptions back then. It may have been 30 pills of Vicodin. That's not a very strong narcotic, but halfway through that bottle, I was already trying to figure out how I was going to get more. And so he offered to pull the next three wisdom teeth, but I decided I wanted one at a time because I want a prescription at a time. My brain was already thinking and it never ended, man, until the day I got clean. I mean, it never ended. It was my wisdom teeth. Then I made, I wanted to see if I had any cavities to fill. Then I I was like, oh, my knees hurt. I had some knee cortisone shots, which they gave me by, you know, it just progressed. Now, my parents are also opiate addicts, so there was opiates in my parents' house, and I, I went there and, and got from them occasionally, um, and then it, it just slowly progressed. The alcohol, the alcohol always stayed, so it was the Vicodin and the and the drinking and the, all day long, and then um, I started doctor shopping, ER hopping. You know, you know that wasn't enough. Like you know, I know people that do that for their whole you know addiction quote-unquote career um I I wanted more and so I mean it's so weird it's like a I don't know if you want to call it bad luck or you know I, I would just randomly like these people would come into my life like this guy that used to wash my car because I was a hairstylist I did manage to be a functioning um drinker and user for a few years not long but I had a guy that used to come to work and wash the car go figure. The guy asked me if I knew anybody who wanted to buy Norcos. I mean, so random. Mm, mm-hmm. I know people that want to buy Norcos. I would buy, I would spend my money and buy bottles and bottles from this guy. He thought I was selling them, but I was taking them all. I mean, I would take so many that I would vomit them on the floor and pick the pills up from the vomit and take them again. Wow. I mean, it was extreme. That's hardcore. It, it was hardcore. I mean, and I was trying to do this in silence. I, you know, I didn't want anybody to know, of course, as we do, you know, you know, somebody asked me the other day, you know, like, what did, 
what did you think about yourself? And, you know, were you like questioning yourself? What was happening? Did you question, were you like in an addiction or whatever? And I never did. The only thing I cared about is if somebody else thought that. I never like sat with myself and was like, wow, you're really getting out of control. So a, I hall- just, a hallmark of your addiction, you were concerned with what other people, how other people saw you and if they thought you were an addict or an alcoholic? Yes, that's all I cared about because that is how I grew up. It's all a stage. It's all, you protect the mess. As long as the mess looks pretty on the outside, nobody confronts the mess. This is my life. This is how I grew up. This is the way that I've been taught. I am a groomed secret keeper. There's no other way around it. I have been groomed since my baby years to be a secret keeper, to pretend that things are perfect, and never confront the shit that's going on on the inside. You don't, you don't even have to pretend it's perfect on the outside, but no, you don't confront it at all. You just swallow it. Chew it up, swallow it, don't say anything to anybody, not because of anything internal, all because of external, because you don't want people to look at you different. And I carried that on, and that was my addiction. I never pondered to myself or, like, had a war with myself about that. It was always about, that was the only my only concern. And so I was so out of control that I, I couldn't pull it off anymore. You know, I lost my job, and I... I had an apartment at that time. And I mean, like I was not paying the bills. I was using all the money. You know, I was started writing fake checks, spending all my credit card money. You know, I went through my resources as we do until I ended up homeless. And, you know, the pill, that guy, the pills would run out. And then I happened to, you know, I did, I did meth when I was um, in high school. You know, I got arrested in high school. You know, I, I was, I had a meth addiction, but, but it was short term back then and and it went away for a while you know I I lost contact with those people I don't know whatever uh, when I was about 15 and so I got reintroduced to my old friend meth (laughs) and which helped me stay awake being on so much alcohol and pills and um, I started buying oxycontin selling oxycontins you know the pills are so expensive that I I could not uh, afford them anymore the pills are just man a lot of money so I, I was homeless and I was staying at this meth dealer's house, you know, disgusting place on the couch, dope sick, so dope sick. Oh my God. And he said, I have a guy coming to help you out. Well, I was thinking the guy was coming to bring me pills, you know? So I was like grateful. I mean, I was sweating, shitting on myself. Oh God. Just, it's her, yeah. it's horrendous if anybody knows what it's like to withdraw from any type of opiate, but especially pills. Any type of, you know, heroin sucks to, to withdraw from, but like methadone and oxys and stuff, oh my God. Hmm. And the guy showed up and he didn't have pills. He had heroin and a needle. And when you're that desperate, you know, that was something, at least I don't use needles. At least I don't use that big H word, you know, as if it's different. It's not fucking different. Yeah. It's the same shit. I hate to bust anybody's bubble, but if you're addicted to Vicodin, you might as well be addicted to heroin. It's the same shit. I think that's an important point. It is. It's the symbolism of it all. And what, because it what comes you're from using a doctor. It, yeah, and what you're using it for and, yeah. and how bad it gets and, and all that. So you started doing heroin at this yeah. point. How do you end up behind bars? 
Um, well, gosh, I started getting arrested um, about that time. You know, I live in the same town that I that I moved back to at nine and a half years old. I still live there still to this day. And um, so I, I started getting arrested and getting a name for myself as being, you know, I, I'm, I'm the girl that wants to be the tough the tough chick. You know, I, I don't want anyone to ever think that they can they can ever uh, victimize me again. So I, what I do, <laughs> what I did, and this has carried on through recovery, so we'll touch on that later. But what I, what I did is I would pick the toughest, most violent crowd I could find, and I'm going to be the girl that proves I'm different. I'm going to be the girl that's going to drive across the border with, like, you know, Israeli Uzis in my trunk. And they're going to let me because they're going to let me go down for it. However, in my mind, I thought it was because they respected me because I'm so down ass. You know, I'm such a hard ass. I, this is what I did. I, I drove because here I was a white girl. And this is a little bit in the earlier stages of my heroin addiction and meth addiction where I could still pull off looking sort of decent, you know. So I was a perfect candidate to, to smuggle stuff across the Mexican border. Perfect. Mm -hmm. And so I hung around these guys that, you know, used me. <laughs> But I thought I was being the tough girl, the, the you know, the cool girl. And um, so I started committing a lot of crimes. And eventually the cops, I really got a big name around here. And the cops started hunting me down a lot. And I got a lot of warrants. And, you know, I went through the system of like, you know, you get your first arrest. They, you know, sentenced me to like some outpatient thing, which I'm, t you know, I, here I am in complete heroin withdrawal. And I'm in court. And it's been like, I think it's two days or whatever. The judge says, we're going to let you go home as long as you, you know, do that. I'll sign whatever the fuck you want me to sign to get me out and get me well, you know? So I agreed to tons of treatment things, you know? I mean, they gave me Prop 36. Remember that? I don't know if they still do Prop 36. I don't know, but yeah, I remember it. You know, Prop 36, drug court, you know, all those like random, random things. But um, so I started building up, you know, lots. Of, I had lots of warrants and man, I, I became a, a big time thief, you know, I, and um, I started robbing homes, you know, um, thank God I never did a home invasion, but I mean, I was ballsy, you know, I would go, this is before, you know, everybody has the doorbell ding dong. What is that thing? The ring thing, ring. you know, mm -hmm. now it's like, dude, you can't do that anymore. But I used to knock on doors. If no one answered, I'm going to break in. Wow. And if someone answered, I just make up a fake thing. I remember climbing in someone's window at night and I thought nobody was home and I climbed through the kitchen window and all of a sudden from upstairs, this girl comes out. Hello. And I'm like, is so-and-so here? She's like, Oh no, she's at a party across the street. I'm like, okay, thank you. And I ran out the front door. I mean, so wow. random that it happened to be the right name, but fuck, wow. that could have sent me to prison for a long time. Yeah. You know, wow. home invasion is a, anyways. So, yeah, I went to jail a lot of times and um, it got longer and longer until they, I eventually went to prison. And so in total, all the times <laughs> you went to jail and prison, how much time have you spent, you know, behind bars in your life? Jeez. Oh, my gosh. Year? Are we talking many years? Years. Few years? Well, I got I got, you know, I was sentenced four years in prison. Um, and I did a little bit over two years. Um, but then I was also sentenced to like, um, I think I did seven months one time in county. 60 days, you know, and little stuff then, then like maybe seven days, 10 days, you know, but my longest time was prison, obviously. Part of the purpose of doing a podcast like this is to share your story of hope, which we're going to get into 
the good stuff here as we get into yes. your, your recovery and uh, your, yes. your moment of truth, if you will. I think it happened while you were in prison, and you talk about okay. it in your book, Shape of a Woman. Jen Elizabeth is the author and recovery advocate here. Get us to that moment where something happened and mm. something changed, and you started down, you turned a corner and went a different way. So I was sentenced to prison for four years and, um, you know, I, I don't believe, you know, I really don't believe that there's a lot of rehabilitation in prison. However, I'm somebody that needed a long time to clear my head out, like to even hear a message of recovery or anything, you know, I mean, 60 days, 30 days, 90 days, that, that's not enough for me. I, I don't think it's enough for a lot of people. Um, but I mean, I, when I was first sent to prison, I, I actually had lost the ability to read. Wow. I mean, I, I literally could not put words, letters together to make up words. Just because of the years so of the much drugs. drug use, yeah. so much drug use and so much, you know, I lived in the underworld, you know, I lived in the underworld, you know, homeless or with you know, whatever. So I had no, I lost all humanity. And I truly, I, I mean, literally could not read for a long time. So it took me a lot of years. So prison was, you know, it's what I needed. For me, it's what I needed to get clear enough. And, and I did use in prison. Um, it's f much fewer and further in between. My behavior continued in prison. I was smuggling um, tobacco, which bought me drugs. And, but, you know, even aside from the drugs, you know, so much about my addiction is, is once you remove the drugs, I have a lot of behavior. I really was addicted to the lifestyle as well. You know, the, the danger, the thrill, the, yeah, the challenge, the danger, mm -hmm. the danger, the challenge, the being tough. You know, I always wanted to be tough. I think there's a line in the book, you know, you said you, you would push people away before yeah. they could hurt you and this tough yeah. persona. It was a survival mm -hmm. mechanism, though, it sounds like from what you're describing yeah. here. Yeah, but I unfortunately, I no longer knew when to stop it. You know, I just, I really just wanted to push everybody away before they could hurt me. You know, I was going to self-destruct before anybody tried to destroy me. You know, it was all about having some control over myself, even if it's chaotic control. Right. It was some control. I was so out of control my whole life of the, my surroundings. I was taken advantage of as a child. Then I was out of control of my mom's, you know, you know, mental illness and stuff. So like I finally had some of my own control and, and that continued on. So in prison, I, you know, was exhibiting all these behaviors and about uh, a year into my sentence, or a year into my, you know, I was sentenced for years. I think I did two years and five months or something. I had a, a divine, I mean, I, I don't know how else to call it, but divine intervention, you know. Um, if anyone's ever been to prison, especially a women's prison, you'll know it is, there is no silence. There is no quiet. There is no peace. It is loud. I mean, fighting, whatever. And I was in my cell and all of a sudden the room kind of swirled a little bit and I, this, all the sound just left the room. I don't, I don't know how else to say it. Just, I just, it got quiet for a second and I heard four words. I heard them. I felt them. It was a sense, you know, and it just said, this is your life. And I, I all of a sudden just hit me like a ton of bricks as it should have hit me a long time ago. But, but finally it hit me that, like, this is going to be it for me. 
I'm looking around at this concrete walls. I have a metal bunk, a metal locker. I was 34. I had nothing. I had no, you know, everyone's going on with their lives out there and, and they were starting to get married and they had careers and going on vacations. And I mean, to the simple stuff, wearing perfume, I was an animal. I mean, I, I, I really was an animal. So it hit me that this is my life. Like if I don't do something, this is it for me. And here I'm friends with like lifers and people that are never, they're still there, man, right now. Right now, as we speak, they are still there in that horrible reality of prison, which is just, I mean, it's so depressing there. <laughs> it sounds like, yeah, it, but, you know, it's beyond <laughs> nothing could have prepared me for prison. I mean, I, but it sounds beyond. like it turns out though, you know, as incredible yeah. as it sounds that it was the best thing that could have happened to you perhaps because yeah. Yeah. you may have been dead many times before or after had you not gone <laughs> and you had this moment, you had mm -hmm. this, like you called it a divine intervention, an epiphany, mm -hmm. whatever it is, you heard these four yeah. words. Yeah. So bring us from there out into you finally. So did you stay clean in prison from that time on? From that point on, that is my clean date, May 1st. Yeah. 2011. May, from that moment on, how much more time did you spend in prison after that moment before you got out? I still had a year, I think. I think I had like 13 more months or something. You'd been using in prison, but at this point, another year or so, and you stayed yeah. and, you, and you were sober and you were clean and you're, you're surviving prison that way. Did you start to pursue different kinds of resources? I don't know, were there meetings in prison, 12 steps, mm -hmm. other things? How did you get started in your recovery journey, or the support, I guess? I had been introduced to recovery um, before in my other little sentences to, you know, I would sometimes try to go to these, you know, outpatient things. So I did know what NA and AA were. Um, and I did, I did, I, I managed to get like short, I say clean time because I think there's a difference between clean time and recovery. Okay. So give us your view of that. What's the difference? Well, clean time just means I'm not drinking or using. Re recovery means I'm actually working on healing myself. Okay. And yes. healing my life. Okay. Uh, great. And I agree with you. And, I, and that's what I was hoping you were going to say. And that's exactly it. Yeah. Just subtracting the substances from our bodies doesn't mean we're, quote, recovering. Right. <laughs> no. So in prison, May 1st, 2011 is my clean date. Okay. But I didn't okay. really get into recovery there. I did choose not to drink and use because I thought that was my problem. Makes because sense. that's what's that's what's causing me these negative consequences, right? So if I eliminate that, then I'll be all good, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's a, such a fucking lie. <laughs> that's complete bullshit. You're right. Good. Yeah. We're on the same page. <laughs> but, okay. I mean, but I thought that because that's the first external, you know, thing you can eliminate. And so I and that's the first step to recovery. You know, you're not going to heal anything if you're still drinking and using and numbing and escaping and, you know, and other manifestations of trauma, you know, eating disorders, anything that you're that you have to keep a secret that is, you know, harmful to you. You're not going to be able to get true bone to skin recovery if you're still living in those behaviors. So the first step is, you know, getting clean and sober. So I did do that in prison. However, I was still smuggling tobacco, you know, still acting like a hard ass, still pushing people away. I did not pursue much. Rec it was, there was no recovery happening, but I was clean. So as I was, you know, more and more clean, what happens is I became more and more tortured. 
<laughs> because I, I'm not one, you know, I see, especially on Instagram a lot, um, these people that post these pictures in the fucking sunshine at 11 days, you know, clean and sober and they're drinking tea out on the deck and they're like, life's so good. Dude, yeah. that wasn't me. Yeah. I mean, I always say that's, man, congratulations. That's so beautiful. But I sure hope that other people do not feel less than if they don't feel that way, because that was not me, dude. I was Gollum from Lord of the Rings for like two or three years in recovery. So I'm serious. And some people, I, I mean, maybe they do feel that way at first and great. They talk about it in 12 steps, you know, the, the different phrases, pink cloud, this, or whatever. Pink cloud. Mm -hmm. yeah, right. Yeah. But then eventually, for most of us, that shit wears off. And the reality of the reality of looking at the quote wreckage of our past mm -hmm. comes up. So that's where the real recovery has to start mm -hmm. if yeah. someone's gonna want to maintain continuous long term sobriety of the many years varieties right. we're talking about here. So you're clean, you're in prison for another year, you get yeah. out of prison, what happens? Uh -huh. So I get out of prison, I paroled to my parents' house. And, and my parents are addicts, prescription addicts. So that's better in their eyes, but prescription addicts. My brother also lives there and he is also a prescription addict. And I, I got right into NA and AA. I mean, you, it's a miracle. So <laughs> that, and, and you not. found great benefit from that? I, I'm going to tell you, I love the 12 steps. However, I do not think that is the only way to recover. Okay, good. So I'm with you I'll on be that. very clear about that. Okay. I personally am a 12 stepper. It has worked for me. It is not the only tool I use. And I understand that it doesn't work for everybody, but it, it does work for me very well. And really the 12 steps is just about self-reflection. And I'm a self-reflection junkie. Like I am constantly looking internal and making sure my behaviors fit the motives because I can very easily slip into different, you know, old coping skills by shopping, all kinds of shit. So for me, the 12 steps is great. I love the 12 steps. Now, I am not a 12 step or die. There's uh, plenty of other um, avenues to go. I, I think for me, I would never try anything else unless if the 12 steps stopped serving me so well, I would have no problem searching somewhere else. And that's honest. And I'm with you on that just for a point of clarity. I'm also from a 12-step situation for many years, and then I wasn't for many years, and I'm currently not now. I've talked about it mm -hmm. on other things and episodes of this podcast, but I'm not uh, anti, and I, I guess I'd say I'm, I am pro to the extent if it works for someone, it's worked for you, then mm -hmm. yes. But it, like you said, it doesn't work for everyone. I'm well no, aware of that. And there are mm -hmm. so many other modalities out there today that didn't exist when I first got sober many years ago. And so I say whatever works for you, definitely. So are you still a part of a 12-step community today? I am. I am. Yeah. Okay. And, and, you know, um, I, I'm very careful with how I, I you know, I, I really want to be careful with, I think, it, you know, in early recovery, people search out the easy way. So if I say, well, I, yes, I'm in 12 steps, but I only go to a few, you know, like a meeting a week, I just maintaining somebody in early recovery might hear that and think, well, I'm meeting a week. There we go. I'm good. You know, I want to be clear that I have put a lot and I still put a lot of work in healing my life. I mean, 
when I first got out of prison, I was going to like three meetings a day. You know, I had a sponsor working my steps, being of service, all the things that was suggested to me and whatever modality you choose, all the things that are suggested to you. I had to change everything about myself, everything. And, and the, like I said, you know, when I first got clean and sober, all my wounds were just bleeding everywhere. I mean, I had nothing to numb myself. It was fucked you know, and, and I'm grateful for the 12 steps because it gave me a structure because any, any time if I'm left to my own devices, when I'm in that much pain, man, it's not a good situation. Absolutely. It's a really important point. And I never, this show recovery collective, we focus on solutions. And so again, what, what I want to say to that is, and I'm glad you brought up about, you know, well, how many meetings should you go to? How often should you go? Or do you go to meetings? Or you have some other methodology. And I think some people get caught up in the weeds of, of that stuff and not yeah. really, are you growing and getting better? And I know that sounds that's simplistic that and trite, but that's the bottom line, right? Are you growing yeah. and getting better, not using, actually recovering, meaning like you said earlier, Jen Elizabeth, author of Shape of a Woman, focusing on the stuff that was fucking with you in the first place and all the things that we all run from or try to hide or, or put under mm -hmm. the covers or, or whatever. And you're actually looking at and working towards, if not fixing those things, at least, you know, somebody said one time I heard in a meeting, you know, if you can't turn it off, at least turn it down. And I thought that yeah. was really great. So I used to go to a lot of meetings too. Today I go to fewer, but that's not, I'm not saying that. And I don't want that to sound irresponsible <laughs> or reckless to someone right. that's newer in recovery. I went to a lot of meetings because I had to understand and learn how to live a different way, like you're describing. Right. But it took me years of going to a lot of yeah. meetings to get to that point to where today, right. maybe I don't have to go to as many, but that doesn't mean I'm all good. I'm not fixed. I'm not cured. No. I'm still no. on a journey here, right? Right. Yeah, that's that's it. You know, it, I, there's no set standard. There's no set standard for time of how long it takes to heal. I mean, I think this is a journey I'll be on forever. You know, healing is going to be yep. something I do forever. And I'll, and going back to what you said about turning it on or turning it down, I, I went further and I turned it around because my pain has turned into my strength today. Let me ask you this. I pulled out a few choice quotes in here from your book shape of a woman and just oh. i'll say them to you and this one here based on what you just said just spark this here and expand on this you said here quote recovery for me doesn't mean to become new but you're talking about turning mm -hmm. it around and i like that what do you mean by that recovery for me doesn't mean to become new i guess what i'm trying to say is i would not want to take away anything that i've ever been through i i personally I would not be who I am today if you took away even one thing. And that and that includes everything. I've had somebody go, really, really, Jen, you wouldn't have, you know, removed the molestation or whatever. No, I would not. I would not. Because I feel like my pain has become, there's a purpose, you know? I just think, like, you know, this is my purpose. And, and I feel like I, my pain, you know, all that pain that you're trying to avoid in recovery, because reco people in recovery still try to avoid pain. Just because you're clean and sober does not mean you're not trying to avoid pain. Absolutely. <laughs> Nobody wants to. Okay. So I feel like once you get to the point where you start to figure out that the power to change your life is in that pain, it's right there. It's in the stuff that you're afraid to face. It's like with anything, like, you know, once you start getting uncomfortable, you get comfortable, more comfortable in the uncomfortable. Like for me, avoiding pain is a death sentence. 
silence is a death sentence, which is why I'm kind of out there and say, because I don't want to, I don't want to swallow any bit of my truth anymore. Because for me that then I start retreating back to that old sickness. I don't want to be sick. Like the goal of my life is not to be clean and sober. The goal of my life is to be healed. That's a huge distinction. Okay. Yeah, it is. It really is. And I mean, clean and sober is beautiful, but uh, there's somebody that says something like, you know, if you don't heal your life, you know, all sobriety means is, you know, congratulations on your glass of water. That's great. <laughs> right? And true, but that's what people think though. And someone's listening yeah. right now or, you know, a lot of people think that that's what recovery is or sobriety is, whatever other word you want to use. It's just, oh, you're going to just give up all this other stuff that maybe used to be fun. Maybe it wasn't mm -hmm. fun. And now you're going to settle into this life of just, oh, you know, ho-hum, drum, I just can't do that anymore and kind of whatever. And maybe over time, it'll get a little bit easier. And I'm here to tell you, and I think I'm hearing <laughs> you say, it ain't mm -hmm. that because if you're focused on just not drinking or drugging, but getting better as a person, that's a whole nother thing. You said in the book, and I love this line too, quote, you cannot fix what you are unwilling to face, right? Absolutely. Yeah. For sure. Another one here that I like, and you sort of touched on this here, and I want to get your thoughts on this as we uh, continue on here. I don't want to start over anew, you say. I don't want to reinvent myself. I want to continue learning from the very things that once broke me to grow flowers from graves. Amen. Yeah. God, I'm a good writer, huh? Nice, right? <laughs> Not bad for me like, pulling out some like, of these did gems. I really write that pulling out shit? some of these gems, Damn, too. Damn. For nice. a girl that couldn't read for one, at one point, that's pretty good. It's good work. <laughs> no, but that's so true. Gosh, you know, I, I'll say like this, you know, for me, helping people is healing. For me, sharing like the real, raw truth of what happens. In life and what's happened in my life and how that has you know how I have abused myself over and over again because that's the truth of it I'm my worst abuser than anybody else you know I can turn that around into something with a purpose you know I want to I want to empower people and you know I, I did have a hard time writing my book Shape of a Woman and addressing that to women because A, I used to hate women and, and I hated being a woman. I mean, that was a big struggle for me because, you know, I, I've really battled with misogyny myself. With I, I, I just, I had no respect for women. I had no respect for myself as a woman. Um, I wanted to be a tough woman. I thought softness was weak. I thought emotions and love were, were just ways to, uh, you're just crying to be a victim. And so that was a big, I mean, that was a big a point for me where the fact that I wrote a book, you know, really addressed to women and it, it is a book for everybody. However, you know, I am a woman. I have learned to accept this and not only accept this, I cherish the fact that I'm a woman today and that has taken a lot of healing, but you know, I want everything that I've been through to mean something. I want it to mean something for somebody else's healing story, you know, and like, we're talking about all this healing and stuff. And I wanted, I want to touch on one thing that I don't know, you may not agree with, but I think there's a difference between substance abuse and addiction. Okay. Explain that. <laughs> I think that there are people that can, anyone can slip on into a substance abuse. If you take any chemical, a certain amount of days 
for a certain length of time or, you know, whatever, your body will become addicted. That has a much simpler solution. But when you talk about people with, and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to compare addictions like, were you really an addict? And I was, you know, what I'm saying is that, you know, I think the people that really have to work really, really hard on healing are the people that were probably, like I said, if they really think back, their need to escape pain has been long before they ever found alcohol and drugs. And those people, I think it's like, it's a bigger job, man to really heal your life and heal your trauma or your, you know, the wreckage. I, I mean, I just, you know, anybody with substance abuse can create a lot of wreckage too. So, you know, but it's, it's usually the people that have, you know, those behaviors, you know, what, from before, before even using substances. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I've talked to different people on this show, Jen, who some people are, you know, real anti-labels of people, addict, alcoholic, right. identify with right. it, don't identify right. it. And other people are like, no, you should. Other people, no, you shouldn't. And I'm not here to say nah. what it is. I've identified as an alcoholic myself for a number of years before. Today, I don't know. I, honestly, I'm just being straight with you. I don't know what I think about that. I don't actively yeah. run around and, and say that today. It doesn't mean that I'm not or that it's different. I, I, I don't know. I just, yeah. where I'm at today is I'm a person in recovery. I'm in, I'm in long-term Amen. recovery. And I had right. a whole kinds of shit going back to when I was a kid that predated before I ever took my first drink or drug. And so, you know, again, is that someone's an addict, substance abuser? I don't know. I, I think it's an interesting distinction. I think it's worth it is, people, yeah. I think it's worth people exploring for themselves. I don't think I'm qualified to say, well, this person either, yeah. or is this or that, but it's an interesting thing. I think the key thing, and, and you said this, you said it a few times now in this conversation, which I appreciate is that if you're running away from stuff, if you're not facing those things that were present mm-hmm. in, in you long before you started using this, that, or the other thing, that's the stuff that you have to face in recovery if you hope to you know, get over it long term. And then, like you also said here, and this goes into, again, if you're from a 12-step tradition, the service aspect, helping others mm-hmm. heal through writing a book, mm-hmm. doing a podcast, speaking, all the above, stuff like that, then that's good and you're, you're giving it back. So let me bring us back to this moment here in time. So you're many years into not only long-term sobriety at this point, but recovery. Mm-hmm. And we defined yes. the difference there earlier, which mm-hmm. I think is a deft distinction, a good one. Today, w- how do you maintain this today? Uh, someone's listening and be like, well, man, first of all, what if someone's listening and it's like, well, I didn't, I wasn't at the depths that you were at, Jen, or um, maybe I didn't have as many extremes in my story, but they're struggling still. Maybe they're, uh, maybe they're early in or whatever. What are some things that you do today, our differences aside in our stories, mm-hmm. that right. help you maintain this long-term recovery that you're on now so that you don't go back to that lifestyle? You know, a big one for me is, like I said, sharing my story. I don't think everybody has to share their story loud like like I do. And, and I understand that. I respect that. And I, and I respect people that don't want to be called addict, alcoholic anymore because they don't live there anymore. I respect all that, you know? For me, um, I feel like I, I don't even have, you know, I am, I've healed so much that I could just continue on as a normal mom and a normal woman and, and really just carry on and walk through this earth as if nothing had happened on the outside. Because I do, I am whole today, you know. But 
for me, I think, a, you know, a big, a huge reason that I, I, I feel so good about in my own skin today is that, you know, I don't hide and, you know, I, I share my story with uh, the rawness and, and, and all of it and the recovery and, and whatever. Um, it, it is so to help somebody else, you know, that's struggling. Cause you know, the hope is like, I had no hope before. I mean, I just was hopeless, you know, I, w- I wasn't like a, they say a hope to die. I wasn't a hope to die. I just hadn't, I didn't carry their way, you know, hope is big. Even people that don't acknowledge it, they don't even like recognize it. They don't realize it, you know, to see somebody that has been where they've been. And maybe I have been through more than somebody else, or maybe somebody has been through more than me, you know, and, and they're trying to find the differences. Well, instead of find, trying to find the differences, let's find the similarities because maybe you didn't use heroin and you just drank. Maybe it was cocaine for you and, and it wasn't for me. It doesn't matter, I right? The substance. I think that's so important. I try to point that out. And every time I talk to anyone about this big subject of addiction and recovery, and that is we're so wired to look for differences, not just <laughs> with this subject, but any subject what's different and therefore we can say well see that's not me and you know the whole thing about being unique or thinking we're unique in this world uh is is another whole story another whole conversation but looking for the similarities absolutely is there a part of anything that you've said today and i think there's a ton that anyone man or woman young or old can relate to with regards to running from pain not wanting to deal with these things and using whatever else in place of that and I think that's really critical. So for you, being of service to others, helping others, putting yourself mm-hmm. out there. And I think it's also a good point, Jen, that, yeah, you're right. Not everybody has to be out there loud and proud like you are or no. I am or, or other people. Um, in fact, the minority of people are. <laughs> yeah. And that's why it's important if you do feel it, that you do do it. I mean, we, we need, I think this this community needs more people in recovery, really healed people, you know, and that doesn't mean you have to be in the 12 steps. That doesn't mean you have to identify as an alcoholic or an addict anymore, because maybe you are not anymore. Maybe you feel recovered and that's great. Amen. And and yeah. I feel recovered. Mm-hmm. I, I really do. However, you know, for me, I identify more, not for myself, but for the new newcomers. So that they understand I'm not separating myself as being better than them. Mm-hmm. You know, I, so I still, I have no problem identifying, but that's just me. I, I agree respect with that. anybody. I appreciate that. And I agree with that. That's why, I, that's why I do this podcast. That's why I put my stuff out there because I want somebody that's newer into whatever. And they're at that point where they're thinking, man, my life's fucked. I, I got to do something else, but I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. Maybe they're going to resonate with Jen, author of Shape of a Woman, yeah. and your story. Maybe they're going to connect with me, a, a rocker dude, you know, whatever, or somebody else or any variation thereof or both, you know, and offer some hope that there is another way and life can be better. Now, here's the thing. You know, you said this earlier, and I just want to touch on this. Just because you get sober and in, in recovery and recovered, however you want to put it, Does that mean you don't still have problems in life? And what? (laughs) Right. It's absurd, right? What do you do? How do you handle life on life's terms today without using these other things? How does it look for me? You know, I have a a great support network of of women and men, you know, that I can always call or or text or message at any time. I have a, I'm super spiritual. Like, I'm, I, you know, the hashtag spiritual gangster, that is me. Like, people make fun of me because, like, if you're not spiritual, and I'm not saying God or, or religious, 
But if you don't have a spirituality, just come over to my house. Because I will shove that shit so far up in you. You will leave here <laughs> singing hallelujah. Yes. Like, I am so spiritual. Because I was saved by a spiritual experience. The fact that I'm still walking this earth after everything that I've done to myself, I should not freaking be here, man. I mean, a million times over should not be here. For real, for real. And and the fact that I'm not only am I clean and sober, but, like, dude, I, I like, I'm whole. I was so shattered and broken. And to be whole today, you know, I, I'm just, I, I'm, I stay really close in contact with my spirituality. I meditate, which I'm not a great meditator. I'm going to tell you that. I'm just getting into like, in fact, I have to do guided meditation because I lose my train of thought real quick. Okay. <laughs> guided meditation is awesome, dude. Ser- I, I, it's great. You know, I don't meditate for a long time and I don't sit in a perfect pose and I'm not all fancy. Do nothing about me is fancy. Okay. Except maybe my pink hair. <laughs> I'm not fancy at all. You know, and there's parts of me, even though I have found, I found my footing in my softness and I found strength in my womanness. I'm still me, you know, I'm still a little rough around the edges. I'm still a little ghetto. You know, I'm still me. And that's okay because I love me today, you know. And I think that if I tried to change that, it would only be for somebody else. And once I start doing shit like that, I'm reverting back to, like, the way I've always been. It is just, you know, swallowing my truth, disowning what I feel inside. And that's the thing. Like, maybe I was hiding in the closet slamming heroin, but maybe somebody else was hiding in the closet drinking wine, hiding from the kids. Right. You know, it's the emotion underneath that we are connected it's not necessarily maybe you didn't go to prison, but maybe you maybe your husband left you, you know, or maybe maybe somebody at the in the school uh, drop off line confronted you because they smelled wine on your breath. It's the same. It's the it's it's the underlying emotion that connects us like we don't have to be uh, live the same past, you know, to be connected in this in this journey of like trying to be the most healed versions of ourselves for our children. You know, because that's the thing, like, you don't have to have children necessarily. But once you do have children, my God, the, the having children for me really put, especially having a daughter, because I had so many issues with women, um, really put me on on the fast track to wanting to get to my issues about women, you know, and like I said, when I got into when I got clean and sober, um, a lot of those issues weren't being dealt with, you know, I had to I had to go slow, man, it's it was Forrest Gump, man. I had a lot of people to walk through, a lot of wreckage and a lot of trash. And it took a lot, a long time and a lot of pain. And I wanted to give up a lot of times. I yeah. did not want to fucking do it anymore, man. It hurt so much. It hurt so much to face the things I had done to myself. It hurt so much to face the things that were done to me. It hurt to admit and accept that my parents did not love me the way that a parent really should love a child, you know, all that stuff fucking hurt. But, you know, every time I faced one thing and another thing, another thing, it, it becomes, that is my survival skill today is facing pain. It really has. That is like my new drug of choice. That's huge. It is right. It's like, man, when something comes up, cause I'm human, I get insecurities, I'm getting old. I want to get, you know, this done and that done, or, you know, my butt looks big and I, you know, eating disorder, you know, I always, I'm always trying to stay on top, you know, things have come up, you know? And if I avoid that, it's like, it's like a relapse in a way, you know, I've even questioned, this is how much I believe recovery, how little I believe recovery has to do with the substance. 
is that I've even questioned my recovery date because there were times in my recovery where I, my eating disorder got out of control. Mm, that's interesting. And, and I almost felt like changing my date. However, it's not, my date is just about drugs and alcohol, clean time, you know? Sure. But that is how deeply I feel about recovery being about healing your life, is that the substances are, is very, such a small, <laughs> it's such a small part. It is, you know, absolutely crucial in the beginning, but it's such a small part. So I face everything. You know? I think everything you said there is so on point. It's the secret if you will, if there is one, you know, to, <laughs> yeah. to this journey. And you're right. It's not about the substance. I mean, I put a post uh -uh. up a while ago and I said, I quit. I quit all this stuff I used to do, these substances and, and everything. But it's the, really the least of it. For me, is the least of it. <sighs> yep. Quitting, drinking, and drugging and all that was the least of it. It was all the things that mm -hmm. I had to start, all the things I had yes. to begin and still do that are the real work. So yep. as we get close to wrapping up here, Jen, this is great stuff. It's Jen Elizabeth, author of Shape of a Woman, Recovery Advocate. Let's wrap up here with what's next for you. Uh, what are you doing? I think at the time of this recording, you just got back. You're, you did a commercial. Mm. You just mm -hmm. shoot some commercials, maybe writing yeah. another book. Give us, yeah. the, uh, give us the quick overview on what's coming up and where people can get a hold of you and find you. Gosh, yeah, so much is happening. So many doors are opening up for me. Um, it's, I feel really, really blessed. Um, I, I did. I just got back from Cincinnati to Cincinnati um, at one in the morning this morning. Um, I was shooting a commercial with a with Matthews Hope Foundation, which, you know, is a man who lost his son um, and battled opioid addiction. And um, they are not a twelve step. This is how much I believe that twelve steps are not the only way. They are not a twelve step. They do not follow the 12 steps. However, they have a great modality that they are promoting, not promoting, but um, developing um, to help people that are, you know, trying to detox and then recover long term from opioid addiction. And we were at the ABC studios. I was go figure that, you know, I was there with um, Doug Goldstein, the manager of Guns N' Roses for like 17 years. This, this man is also part of this nonprofit. He has dedicated his life now also to helping people with addictions. He obviously knows very well about addictions from you know, sure. his, you know, his career path. I mean, we had a great time. We had a great time. And um, I just feel so blessed. So they're going to be airing, um, starting off just airing in Ohio, which is the nation's, you know, capital for the overdose death uh, right now. Uh, it's a bad scene over there, man. It is a bad scene. But I think it air starts airing on ABC uh, March 11th, but it will be pushed nationally. So, my God, what a trip if I see myself on TV. <laughs> that, we'll be looking for that. That'll be great. Oh, you're out, you're out there as a voice of encouragement and hope. I for am. That. That's it was a message of hope. That's all it is. It's just a message of hope and a message um, to loved ones, you know, that, they're not alone. It's, it's not just us out there. It's also the people that love us and the people oh, yeah. that, you know, are affected, our children and our parents and our, and our husbands and wives and people that feel so alone. You know, you watch someone, you know, when someone's in addiction, like, you know, you don't recognize them anymore. But guess what? They don't recognize themselves anymore. You know, yeah. it, it's just everybody becomes lost in it, you know, and there is hope, you know, it, it this, when you read off the statistics, it seems fucked. It seems so fucked. The relapse rate, the, you know, the overdose rate and all this stuff seems so destitute and like dismal. But it really, it, you know, there is hope. 
And I see it happening and I see miracles every day. Like, I don't know how someone couldn't believe in a miracle when, once you get into recovery. Like, I, I am a miracle. I see miracles. My life today is a miracle. You know, I, the fact that I wrote a book, you know, a lot of people have said like, gosh, I, I wanted more. I wanted, I read your book and I wanted more. Well, there's a little method to my madness to that. You're writing a second I do one? have a part two. Yes. Okay. When, <laughs> I do. Is that in the works now? It is in the works now. And, you know, uh, my first and foremost job in life is I'm a mother. So that comes first. So it does cut down my writing time. It does cut down my time to do these other things. However, I am writing a second book. Um, this will be a book uh, specifically focusing on my addiction chapter. Um, and that I think that's what that's my vision, I think, is to write a few sequels to Shape of a Woman getting more into the chapters of shape of a woman, because I think I touch on, on what I wanted to touch on that first book. You know, I, I gave the emotions under everything, but you know, I didn't get into a lot of detail. And so that's kind of what I feel. And so obviously, you know, being that I'm so, you know, pumped about recovery and, and want to really inspire hope. I think that is why I started the second book on that. But so I'm doing that. And, um, Gosh, what else am I doing? Podcasts and radio shows and who knows, man. You know, that's the thing. Anything's open. That's that's the blessing about recovery is that, like, I, I'm not, you know, I, I fought through the trenches and, like, now I'm out and, like, I feel so fucking free. You know, I'm not perfect. I don't not struggle. But, but it's, like, I feel so free. Like, the fact that I have opportunities today, the fact that, you know, I have healthy children and we have a puppy and I, I feed everybody. I mean, these are things that, you know, I go to the store and I pay for my stuff and I don't, um, you know, I try not to lie and I try not to, you know, I'm not silent anymore. I don't hang around people that are toxic anymore. I just, you know, I've really learned to love myself enough to set boundaries. I don't speak to my family unfortunately, but that's just how it has to be for myself and my children. I'm not afraid to stand up for myself anymore. That's big for it's, me. I end with a question like this. You kind of just touched on it, but let me just give you one opportunity to do it as we wrap up here. It's Jen Elizabeth. The book's called Shape of a Woman. Look forward to the next book and <laughs> perhaps series of them where you're going to dig yes. deeper into the details of the stuff that's outlined <laughs> in your first book, Shape of a Woman. You're on Instagram at resurrection with the K, resurrection underscore of underscore me, resurrection underscore of underscore me. That's where I found you. And I know you're on Facebook yeah. and some of the yeah. other usual suspects too, right? Yeah, mainly Instagram, man. I just, I love the community and Instagram, you know, and, and I, I think it's important to also have face-to-face -face community. Please, anybody, you know, don't just have online support. You need face-to-face -face support. You know, but the online community there is amazing. And and what's amazing is that I go to these, I've been going to events and speaking out and I'm actually meeting these people and we're actually real life people and we're actually real life people that are really recovering and really at each different stage of our lives. But, but it's not all fake. And I know that people can assume that. And I assumed that. And I thought everyone was bullshit on there because you can be anybody on the internet. You, can. you know, you really can. You're right. For sure. and, and you're right. And you get to meet. I mean, we're doing this on Skype right now with video yeah. and stuff, but it's not the same as meeting in person. Maybe we can one day. I would love that. But yeah, for sure, man. You, you know, and I will say that I'm glad you mentioned this. Let me just throw this in. I, some of the stuff out there on social media with recovery or whatever, it is bullshit. Some people's mm -hmm. motives are fucked. 
uh, uh, I've found. But I, again, to look at the similarities, not the differences. Don't focus amen. on that. That doesn't mean ever. There's people out there doing good work like you, Jen. Amazing people. Many, many. And But we need more. There, there's not enough. I, yeah. When I first started doing this recovery collective podcasts and all my writings and stuff somebody asked me like why are you going to do that there's so many there's so much of that stuff out there you know and i was really discouraged by that at first i thought yeah that's true there's a lot but you know what that's bullshit because yeah there might be a lot but we need more we need as much as we can get because as you said the statistics are so staggering they're still they're just dying how many people have died since we've been talking today you know what i'm saying oh my god seriously oh yeah it's terrible last word for you jen someone's listening right now They've listened to this whole thing. They're encouraged, but still on the fence, whatever. Mm-hmm. They're, they're trying to figure this out. You've been there. I've been there. Maybe we still are there sometimes when life gets dark, whatever. Sure. What's your last word to someone listening who's just, they're on the precipice of maybe changing something to maybe get on a road to change their life and improve their life? <sighs> you know, I think the biggest thing is you do not have to be ashamed to struggle. There is no shame in struggling. In fact, the people that I know that have struggled the most are the strongest people that I, I that have come out of that. There's a purpose for your life and there's a purpose for your struggle. And once you find that purpose, you no longer see it as as this like, you know, you're not this victim anymore. You're you're victorious. And it is possible for everyone. Every every fucking buddy deserves to heal their life. Everyone. And it is attainable for everybody. I can promise you that. You know, I, I really can. I really can promise you that everyone is capable of healing their life. Don't you think? Uh, absolutely. <laughs> it's not easy, but it's possible. No, it is possible. Yep. Thank you, Jen. Thank you, man. This it's is awesome. This has been great. The book is called <laughs> Shape of a Woman. It's Jen Elizabeth. Get it out on Amazon. Follow yes. her on Instagram at Resurrection of Me with underscores resurrection underscore of underscore me follower i promise you you will be enriched if you do i've been since i've been uh, connected with you on here which is why i wanted to have you on the recovery collective podcast uh, thank you so much for what you're doing you're an inspiration to so many and i'm a big thank fan thank you ah uh, thank you so much this has been recovery collective with tom Liu. join the conversation and get involved at recoverycollective.net and on instagram at recovery underscore collective Your Total Wine & More store is ready to serve you with our always low prices on an incredible 8,000 wines and 2,500 beers. Want it today? Try our same-day delivery or contactless curbside pickup at TotalWine.com. Whether you're grabbing your favorite beer or pouring a glass to enjoy an evening on the deck, Total Wine & More has you covered. Visit any of our 12 stores in Northern Virginia. Your Total Wine & More store is ready to serve you with our always low prices on an incredible 8,000 wines and 2,500 beers. Want it today? Try our same-day delivery or contactless curbside pickup at TotalWine.com. Whether you're grabbing your favorite beer or pouring a glass to enjoy an evening on the deck, Total Wine & More has you covered. Visit any of our 12 stores in Northern Virginia.